0: How's it going? Thank you. Thank you for the woo-woo. I appreciate that. Feels good. Need a little woo-woo this morning after reading that crazy chapter. (laughs) You came. I'm very proud of you. (laughs) Chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it. Um, Chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. It was weird. Eh? Yeah? Weird? Yeah, you should be me up here with the microphone getting to talk about it. It was weird. Um, So it was weird. So I thought I would start us out with something equally as weird. Everybody up for that? Who doesn't want weird in church? Right? So good. Um, This weekend, we did a retreat. Who was there? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, awesome. It was super fun. If you weren't there, I'm sorry, but you're going to get to listen to it, so, um, but here's the thing, whenever we had this retreat, you know, I was gone for a lot of it, so my husband, because he's awesome, he decided to drive to Fayetteville and go visit our daughter, just like for a 24-hour thing, so they had this awesome time, spent the day together, and um, on his way home, he, because he loves me, he knows that I like old junk. Anyone like old junk? I'm not calling anyone names, I'm just saying. (laughs) same. So he stops, he drives home in a weird way. Cause he's like, I just want a different scenic route, whatever he drives home. And he stops at this little antique slash junk store. And when I, when he got home, um, he, he goes, I bought you something. And I'm like, Oh, it looks like a book. Oh, Oh, it smells old. Oh yes. I love it. He bought me the weirdest thing. Okay. <laughs> this is an old recipe book. I collect cookbooks. I love this. Um, And the cool thing about this book is everything is handwritten. It's beautiful. You need to come look at it. Also, real weird. Okay. Just super weird. Um, And so I was telling my husband, I'm like, I got to find a way to work this into Bible study. And I, I found it. You ready? I found it. Here we go. Strange cookbook. So I opened it up, all this beautiful words and everything. I'm assuming we've done a little, like there's a couple little newspaper clippings that look like from the 60s. Maybe this was from the 50s. I'm not really sure. But I thought the best way to start our weird chapter three is to read from this recipe book a couple of lovely recipes that you might want to copy later. I'll leave it up here in the front, okay? So yeah, it's really good. Take notes, very important. The first recipe I thought I would share with you is called Salmon As You Like It a la Europa. And Mrs. Preston Bradley was actually the author of this recipe. And this is how this goes. Okay. Salmon sounds great. I'm excited about this. It starts like this. Take a one pound can of salmon. (laughs) This is not going well already. Put it in cold water in the can. She makes sure to write that here. Um, and, and then slowly bring it to a boiling point, boil for about 15 minutes in the can, folks. In the can. Maybe add a little white sauce, and you're going to add that by um, using a dash of Worcestershire sauce to your white sauce. So just tuck that away, because we're going to come back to that in a minute. And then she goes on. Take the salmon from the the pan, and take it out of the can, and then slice it in half, and put it in a Pyrex dish, because all good stuff comes in a Pyrex dish, right? Then pour the white sauce over it, and then grate cheese over it. And then, parentheses, she says American. I'm like, hold up, how you grate American cheese? Anybody? So that was a little mystery for me. All right, it, it continues, and then put it under the broiler. And so when the cheese is bubbly and melted, serve it hot on toast and cut it into triangles. You're welcome. Gets better. Okay, that's the end of that recipe. Well, then I start flipping through. I'm like, what in the world is going on in this, in this house? Let me just read you a couple of the titles. And then I promise we're going to do Bible. That's happening in a minute. Okay, here's one of my favorite recipes. It's called Eddie Duncan's Topsy-Turvy Meat Pie. Anybody want that one? Okay, here's another good one. Ooh, anything with the word loaf in it is so good, right? Jellied chicken loaf. I know. Well, people from the olden days, Tell me, understand, help me understand this. Okay, this one sounds, oh, this sounds fabulous. (laughs) It's not fabulous. It says, um, Tribune's recipe for sardines canapé. The great news about this recipe is it says it makes two dozen canapés. So, and they actually cost about 30 cents a piece. So in case you wanted to know that. And then the last one, I mean, it goes on and on. So again, you're welcome to borrow this. This recipe I thought was just breathtaking. It's called cold mousse of chicken. Let me say that one more time. Cold mousse of chicken. But here's the best part. In the ingredients, which are so lovely laid out in the front, it says, I am not lying to you. I wouldn't lie. It's church. It says one cup of ground cooked chicken. Okay, I'll take that. And then one cup of ground boiled tongue. Come on. What? I don't know. That's a lot of chicken tongues. A pound? I don't know. This was such a mystery to me. You're wondering where are we going, right? It's a crazy weird recipe book, you know, crazy weird stuff in there. Some of you are like not as weirded out, which I'm concerned because I'm thinking you might make jellied chicken loaf. But here's what I thought about. I was reading these crazy recipes and laughing about them and I thought, but you know what's cool about the crazy weird recipes is they probably led to a family gathered around a table, right? Right even though they were weird, even though kids probably didn't want to eat that stuff. And then they probably also led to lots of stories, stories being shared and passed down through generations, right? Well, today we're looking at a crazy, weird, slightly scandalous story, aren't we? And I wonder, like, did that lead to stories being passed down? Because we know it led to family. And you, because you, in week one, you read the spoiler that there's going to be family that comes from this. And so I just thought about like, man, even the crazy weird stuff can take us to places, you know, that are special and amazing and that have something to do with family. I don't know. Maybe they even passed down some recipes, you know, grain and such. (laughs) I don't know. It's a lot of grain in this story, right? Um, Well... Weird stuff goes on in this lesson today, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to laugh about it a little bit, and, and then we're going to talk about um, how it ends. You see, because where the whole, this whole chapter three ends, it ends with waiting, and I think if there's anything in the story that we all can understand and we all can relate to, it's the waiting, right? So we're going to go there. So we pray with me, and we'll get started on Ruth chapter three. Um, Father, we just thank you so much for this weird story. <laughs> we, we don't get some of the things that are in your word, but you absolutely have purpose. And we, I just pray that we can remember who this was intended for, remember what was happening at the time and ultimately understand you in a deeper level. And so God, we thank you so much for crazy stories like Ruth chapter three, because we know you have a lot to tell us about who you are and in turn, um, show us where you want us to go. And we thank you for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, like I said, the recipe book is right there. Magic. You can come check it out when you're done. Uh, Ruth chapter three, open your Bible to Ruth chapter three. Here's how this thing is going to play out. We're going to break it into three little parts. Okay. The first part we're going to look at is, is verses one through five. And that's like Naomi's plan. If you did your homework, you know that that's, there's some weirdness. So we'll talk about that, the weirdness. Naomi's plan, verses one through five. And then verses six through 13, we see that that there's like a conversation, but also it's Ruth's plan. Like Ruth changes the plan a little bit. So we're gonna watch that unfold. And then the last section, we're gonna look at the waiting. And that's in verses 14 through 18. So follow along with me, if you would, in uh, verses one through five. Chapter three, verse one starts like this. Then Naomi... Her mother-in-law, that's Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is it not Boaz our relative whose young women? Well, anyways, this this question is very confusing to me. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is out winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. This verses one and two. I'm gonna stop right there. First thing in what you look at, if you write in your Bible, circle the word then. Because the very first word in this chapter, you know what that word does? It, it gives us some anticipation. It shows us that based on what we just learned in chapter two, and if you remember, what happened in chapter two is it ended with a very anticlimactic ending, didn't it? Very anticlimactic. It ended like this in verse 23, like this. So this was, this was Ruth. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. That was the way it ended, right? Such a bummer. We were like, what in the world? We need more. Well, that's how it ended. And so now we know in verse one of chapter three, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, and so she gives her this plan. Listen, um, when you see that little phrase, she finds rest. Do you recognize that from anywhere? Thank you, by the way, Nathan, for that. Do you see that little phrase? Okay, so that little phrase you have seen before in chapter one, verse nine, and here's where we saw it. We saw it in the very beginning of the journey whenever Naomi was taking off with her daughters-in-law and she tried to turn him back because you remember what she said? She said, go back, go back and go try to find rest, go try to find a husband, find a family, find a life, find stability. And so I love that we see the exact same phrasing here because what we know is that Naomi wants for Ruth stability and security in finding a husband and raising a family. Naomi felt responsible, you know, because she brought her with her, right? Well, verse two, that weird question that I struggled through, it's really a rhetorical question, okay? All it is is it's like, see, you know, don't forget that this is where you've been working. Now let me tell you about this dude, okay? This is where she's gonna unravel the whole thing about Boaz, And she tells him to remember, tells her to remember that he's winnowing now. Now, if you did your homework, you did that very exciting reading about winnowing, right? I gave you a little paragraph. You memorized it, I'm certain of it, right? Well, in case you didn't, um, I'm gonna remind you what's going on, okay? Winnowing. It's tossing grain up into the air to finish separating the grain from the shaft. And normally it occurs late in the afternoon and, and when the Mediterranean winds would prevail because the winds were involved. Because when you throw the stuff up, the wind has to kind of pull it apart. It's this whole process. And then there would be sifting and bagging of the grain and it would be carried over past dark. So Boaz would probably have remained there overnight to protect it, Okay. He want to make sure that the grain um, isn't, isn't, isn't stolen. And so he would spend the night on that threshing floor to protect it. Usually a large hard surface is where this threshing floor would occur. It'd be like uh, made of like stone or something. And um, it would be like downwind of the side of the village where the threshing took place, okay? So there's a lot of stuff going on here. But what's interesting is Naomi knew exactly where he would be. And she tells Ruth, right? So she's, she's formulating this plan. Okay, so verse three, we go on. Wash, therefore, which, hey, okay, yes. She told her to take a bath, right? I, I don't know, that was pretty funny. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Listen, maybe... Maybe it was a lot of hard work and she needed to gussy up, right? I mean, that's probably the facts. But here's something else to think about. We don't know exactly all the details of what was happening here, okay? Sometimes, I mean, even in our group discussion, we had a great conversation about what we were all, there was even Reba McIntyre's song even came up. Fancy, I think that came. Now it's going to be in your head the rest of the time. You're welcome. It's in my head. Thank you, Linda Bean. Um, Anyway, we were talking about, like, what did this look like? You know, she's telling her to go take a bath and put on some perfume and, and fix yourself, you know? Well, here's something else to think about. Potentially, yes, Naomi could have been trying to convince her to to look more attractive, to be appealing. I don't know, maybe. But another point of view goes like this. Um, Some scholars believe that potentially it could be that Naomi was trying to tell her to indicate to everyone that the mourning period was over that she was finished mourning for the loss of her husband. You see, the reason why we we kind of think that and we really honestly don't know, okay? That's one of those things. Read between the lines and kind of guess, but just always go back to what it says. And it doesn't say this, but I'm just going to plant a seed. You see in 2nd Samuel verse uh, chapter 12 verse 20, there's this thing about King David and it was so sad, but he had actually lost um, his, he, he had lost a child. And so he was obviously in mourning over the loss of this this life, you know? But then there comes a moment in verse 20 of chapter 12, and it goes like this. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. And then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. You see that whole thing, the anointing, um, the washing, that was all indicative of, you know what? Now we're done mourning and now we have to move forward. We glance back, and then we got to step forward. Okay, so maybe potentially that's what this was about too. Something else, um, when you see there that we go into this whole section about uh, make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking, I want you to, to note, note um, there is nothing in scripture that indicates that he was drunk. Nothing, okay? Sometimes we read some of this and we're like, hey, what, what? he was happy. Yeah, okay, eat, drink and be merry, right. But all we know at this point is that, that he was celebrating this amazing, I mean, think about this, guys. He was like, okay, he's a landowner and they just came off a famine. And so there's this big crop coming in. There's a lot of great stuff happening. And so don't read anything into it that's not there because what we are, what we are seeing over and over is that there is virtue in this man, He's a good man, a worthy man, a solid man. Um, so keep that in mind as you, as you read through this. Verse four, it goes on like this. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Okay, so this is Naomi, so smart. She's basically saying, hey man, don't go lay down by the wrong dude, right? That would make the story real different, wouldn't it? <laughs> So she's like, that's the Chris version. Don't lay it down by the wrong dude. Observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet, scandalous, and lie down, also scandalous, and he will tell you what to do next. And then she replied, all that you say I will do. Verse four, um, remember, you gotta make sure you're going to the right person, but then verse five is very interesting because Ruth just says, I'm gonna do everything you told me to do. Think about who Ruth is. Ruth is the, Moabite, from Moab, right? We hear that over and over and over, right? I mean, I don't know what kind of traditions are going on here, but I'm wondering how Ruth is feeling stepping into this scenario. I don't know. I mean, maybe this is perfectly normal to her, but Naomi's plan is set and Ruth heads out. Okay, so Ruth is taking off for the plan. And so verse six, we see, it starts with the word so. Now notice in this whole chapter, in fact, you can even go back to chapter two. Every time you see the word so, it's like a, um, it's another moment where we are anticipating what's coming next. Okay, so based on what you just read, so, verse six goes like this. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. In verse seven, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, that's what I was talking about before, he went to lie down at the end of his heap of grain and then she came softly and uncovered his feet, weird, and lay down. Okay, all weird stuff. Remember, not drunk, uncover, feet, lie down. All these little phrases are intentionally ambiguous language, okay? Because in the Old Testament, they would be scandalous. All three of those things, okay? It would have seemed scandalous to the Old Testament listeners, but here's what's crazy about the story. See, to us, we just read it and we're like, just weird, like this salmon in a can recipe. But instead, to these people, they would have been like, ah, something is about to happen. But here's what's so cool about that, man. Nothing happens that compromises either of their morality. Nothing brings into question their morality. In fact, that's what's amazing about this part of the story is what happens next and what Boaz chooses to do in this situation shows he is so above board that it's just it's, it's, it's unrealistic to believe he is a man in this culture acting this way. Don't miss that. Because I think we miss that. We just roll right over and we're like, weird, feet, cover, ble- whatever, weird. Don't miss the fact that there's a lot being said here, okay? Well, we see then in um, verse eight and nine, it goes on like this, if I can find it. At, at Verse eight, at midnight, the man was startled. And then, okay, so let's talk about this. <laughs> Wait, let me read it. Okay, I just get excited because this one is hilarious. This is the funniest sentence ever. If you're gonna cross stitch me a pillow, please make it this one. This one's hilarious. At midnight, the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman laid his feet. Can we just talk about that for just a second? Like, okay, a couple of things. One, I was listening to David Platt um, teach on this at one point and I loved how he gave this example. He goes, you know what I think? And I thought this was just brilliant. First of all, Ruth did not fall asleep, right? Are we clear on that? There's no way. She's laying at his feet. There's so many weird things happening. There's no way this woman is like, and good night, right? Not gonna happen. And so I think about Boaz exhausted, you know, from this crazy night, all this work, and he lays down to go to sleep, and it says he's startled awake at midnight. And I always think about what David Platt said, how when, when you, if you've ever um, had a kid or babysat a kid or even have dogs, I would say, okay, You try to go to sleep, you go to sleep, right? And you're sound asleep. And all of a sudden there's just this weird feeling like that you're being watched and you wake up and like there's a face, right, in your face. And like these eyes like, oh, you're awake, it's time to play. It used to be my kids, now it's my dogs. Same face, right? I feel like that's what Ruth, that's how it felt to him. I don't know if she really, we don't really know how the positioning was, but I kind of wonder like, was Ruth just laying there like this, staring at him? Like, please wake up, please wake up, please. That's just me. That's not in the Bible. Please don't write that down. Let's just forget that whole part even happened. Um, okay, so we move on. So verse nine, he goes on. Uh, the author goes on and says, he said, this is after he's been shocked by the weird face, right? In his face, right? He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Okay, there's a few things we need to look at. One, she uses the word servant here. And remember before, I can't remember, chapter two, chapter two, verse 13, she actually used that same term before whenever she was talking to Boaz about his servants. And she said, I am lower than your servants, okay? The thing that's really crazy about the Hebrew language, which is where this stuff originated, English doesn't have enough words to encompass all the different meanings of things. And so the, the, the actual word servant in verse, chapter, ver, chapter two, verse 13, was a different word, you see, in that section, it was actually a word that like meant slave. It meant like the lowest rung of the ladder. Like I am the lowest of the lowest. Well, here it's not that same word. Here, the word actually translates to maidservant, which this is so cool, which actually means it denotes that she's available for marriage to Boaz. Like she is now seeing herself as someone who is on his level enough to say, I'm available. So it's totally different. Isn't that wild? So crazy, right? And, and, and the thing is, whenever she talks about the spreading of the wings, I want you to understand something about that term, which I did not know this either. That term actually refers to the, the literal translation is the wings are like corners of a garment, not necessarily like wings of a bird, okay? That, that little phrase would be very clear to him that she's basically saying, I'm asking you to marry me. That's a marriage proposal, and I love that because not only do we see that if we read um, into what the actual text says that she's saying, hey, I am available and I'm asking you to marry me, but also the beauty of what God does here because it harkens back right to verse 13 of chapter two. Do you remember that? Where Boaz himself prayed over, over Ruth and he prayed that God's protective wings would cover her, right? Right? And so, like, for us, we get to sit here and go, okay, I get it now. Boaz gets to be the channel with which we get the protection from the source, who is God, you know? The protection of those wings, now Boaz gets to step into that. And so that's so cool. Do not miss that double meaning there. There's, there's heaviness and bigness in those words, right? Well, verse 10, we go on. We look at this. He says this. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after younger men, poor or rich. We're gonna stop right there. That's Boaz saying this, guys. Remember before when I blessed you before and I talked about how that amazing kindness you've shown Naomi by leaving all your stuff behind and following her to this place, that's amazing. Like that, that's, that's when I started realizing the character you have. That's when I realized that the whole town is talking about who is this Moabite? Who is this woman? Well, now he's saying the greater act of kindness is that she's asking Boaz to be her redeemer instead of eligible young men. That's a big deal. And so he's saying this is a greater act of kindness. You know what that is? That's Hesed. You know, we talked about that word. You're gonna see it over and over. That's God's loving kindness. That's God's, that's God's willingness to love us through every circumstance. We're seeing that playing out in the, in the actions of Boaz. Verse 11, he goes on and he says, and now my daughter do not fear. Do you love that? I mean, because seriously, this is all weird and stuff, but you know that she had to have been afraid, right? I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Ruth personifies excellence. You remember how a few weeks ago you slept a little bit since then? I told you that in the old Hebrew, in the Hebrew um, order of things, essentially in the Hebrew Bible, that, that Proverbs precedes Ruth. It's in a different order. And so the last chapter of Proverbs is Proverbs 31, and it's about this, this worthy woman. And I love that the idea here is the exact same wording that we see in Proverbs 31. He's calling her a worthy woman the same language Boaz has used. Uh, and, And it's funny because you know before we hear about him as a worthy man, and so before we see the same language talking about him as a man of great wealth, but more likely it was really that he was a man of great valor and honor. And so now you have this excellent woman and you have this man of valor. And so we're to see that like, hey, in the culture of this disaster, we've got these two people rising up who are making choices that are real weird considering what's going on around them. And God's going to bless it and he's going to honor it. Well, verse 12 goes like this. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, circle A, yet there is a redeemer nearer nearer than me. Verse 13, remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. You see, he's saying, I am a redeemer. So this is where we hear the music go, boom, bum, bum, because it's not the only one. So we know there's gonna be a little bit of conflict coming. But Boaz rightly defers to someone else who has a nearer relationship. So he could have not, but we know that he's a man of honor and we know that he will. And I love in verse 13, you see the phrase that says, as the Lord lives. I want you to know this about that. That is the most solemn binding oath an Israelite could vow. So he is making a, an oath to her. He's making a promise to her. And then he tells her to lie down until the morning. Again, would there be any sleeping? I can't even imagine. I'm sure she's like, okay, cool. I'm gonna just go right to sleep. No, she's awake all night. You know it. Because what is going to happen? We have no idea. But we know this, that Boaz is protecting her reputation and he's protecting her physical self even because in these days, there was, it was dangerous to be running around at night. And so he's protecting her even before he knows if he can actually be her husband. Cool, right? What a man. Now that's a worthy man. Now in verses 14 through 18, we get to see um, this last part and it's the waiting. And uh, anybody, okay, let me just take a quick poll. Who loves waiting? Wait, what? If you raise your hand, you lied in church. That's not cool. We don't do that here. No, but isn't that, isn't that crazy? Like, isn't that funny how you read all this stuff, all this crazy story is happening, right? And it's gonna end with a wait. And I thought, man, you know, you talk about applying something, we can apply that, right? Waiting is hard. And in this situation, it, it's still hard. It's just as hard. Well, look at verse 14 through 18. We're gonna wrap up by looking at these verses. And we see in other words, so, okay. So he just said to her, right? Lie down, wait until the morning. I'm going to protect you. Everything's going to be fine. And he starts with so. So, lay, so she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before anyone could recognize her. And he said, let it be known, excuse me, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again, he's concerned for her reputation and protecting her. Verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So. Another so, we're anticipating what's next. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and he put it on her and then she went into the city. Okay, the six measures of barley, this is crazy. First of all, I want you to notice that this um, right here, whenever we see this this measurement, um, scholars believe that this is probably twice as much as the amount that he gave her the last time. Twice as much. I don't do math, but I'm gonna let you do it. So last time we estimated it was probably 30 pounds. So if it's twice as much as 30 pounds, it's... Yeah, y'all are slow. Y'all need more caffeine. I thought I was bad at math. Come on now. I even know how to do that math. There is Scholars estimate that could have been 60 pounds. Ruth's a sturdy woman, amen? I like that, Ruth, man. She's strong. But I think that's so cool about that is because we see that not only is it more but he is taking care, isn't he? I mean, 60 pounds is a lot of food. And so he's taking care of both of them and saying a lot through this 60 pound allotment, right? Well, verse 16, we go on and says, "'And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, "'How did you fare, my daughter?' We'll, go, we'll talk about that in just a minute. And then she told her all, about, all that the man had done for her. Verse 16, if you did your homework, you know that the actual literal translation in the Hebrew here is that, that's not an accurate translation. Really what she's asking is, who are you? And the King James says, who art thou? Which is a weird way. So it's kind of like translators had modernized it because it didn't make sense, right? But here's what I wonder about. It's the same question that that Boaz had just asked her in the middle of the night when he woke up and she was like right in his face, right? Who are you? I think about how Ruth has been so saddled with her history. Right? Every time we see her name, it's Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. And right now, she gets a chance to say, I'm Ruth. I'm looking at my future. I'm not living in my past. You know, we talked in our group, like, is this the transition? Is this the moment when she's no longer Ruth the Moabite? Because what, 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 what we believe here is that, that essentially what, um, what Naomi's asking her is, hey, are you, are you still Ruth the Moabite? Or are you now the future Mrs. Boaz? You know, that's kind of what she's asking is what happened? What's coming? I don't know. The whole thing, her past has defined her. And now we see this cool picture of her redefining her, herself, you know, The past occurs and the past informs, but it does not define, amen? What a cool thing for us to know, just for us to know in 2021, man, who you were is not who you are in Christ. Well, I love that. I love that she gets this opportunity to basically say that is not who I am anymore. In verse 17, it goes on like this. And then she had told her all the things that the man had done for her. And then verse 17, saying, okay, these six measures of barley he gave to me For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. My favorite part of the whole story, here's why. You know what's cool about this? You may have already figured it out. That word empty-handed. Now, first of all, we just talked about the whole scene, the whole conversation between Boaz and Ruth, right? Narrator didn't mention this part, did he? He didn't say, we didn't see this play out where Boaz said, I'm gonna give you this because I don't want you to go back empty-handed to Naomi. No, because the narrator holds this little nugget until now when Naomi's in the room. I love that. Don't miss that. Don't miss that God is giving this opportunity. Don't think for one minute, Naomi doesn't remember what she said back in uh, chapter one, verse 21. Because remember what she said when she cursed God? You remember what she said? That I'm bitter and he has brought me back empty, right? Right? And so right now, our narrator makes sure that we see, make sure that Naomi sees that this redeemer, this one that's gonna save the situation on behalf of God is turning the entire story around. Do you think Naomi saw this one coming? I mean, do you really think, like, seriously, guys, like, do you really think that when she sent Ruth off to do this weird thing, that she was gonna come back with 60 pounds of food and potentially a marriage proposal that would change the future for Naomi forever? Do you think she saw that coming? I love that God just doesn't, he doesn't play by our rules, man. He doesn't say, oh yeah, you tell me what your goals are. You tell me what your plan is and I'll see if I can fit my big God stuff into what you have planned. No, God has bigger, better plans. And I know back in chapter one, that was hard to imagine because there's a lot of funerals and there's a lot of of pain. And yet God brings this whole thing full circle, right? So cool. Well, verse 18, the curtain closes. We're gonna see, um, it's gonna close and we're gonna see some waiting have to happen. She replied, this is Naomi, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter will turn out for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so the whole curtain closes on waiting. And in the words of my favorite Old Testament prophet, Tom Petty, the waiting is the hardest part, right? Right? You people, come on. That was great. I waited to the very end for the Tom Petty quote. Thank you. If you weren't singing that in your head the whole time, I was the whole time. I kept just wait, just wait, wait till the end. Well, it's true though. Tom knows, Tom knew. The waiting is the hardest part. Um, We're familiar with waiting, aren't we? Well, before we walk out of here, I I just want to close with just a couple of thoughts on waiting because I feel like you read this whole story, there's all this anticipation, right? And that is how waiting works, we think we know what's coming, right? We have a plan. God should abide by that plan. And yet he doesn't. We're all familiar with it. Traffic jams or checkout lines. Anybody? Any aggressive drivers in here? I'm going to hold off when I pull out of the parking lot. I'll stay behind you. What about lines at the DMV or, or this is just a personal one. Don't tell my son. Stuttering toddlers. Anyone? I mean seriously. I had a toddler. This is a side note. We, I'll, I'll, this is important content. You need this. I had a, a, a kid, Brayden. He was my oldest. Well, he still is my oldest. <laughs> he anyway, he's older now. Doesn't stutter anymore. But when he was little, he was one of those that you're. He's like, I need to go. go do, I need to, and you're just like, come on, come on. And and all the doctors would say, you know what they said. Don't finish the sentence for him. Let his brain catch up with his mouth. He'll get it out. And so we would literally be like, "Uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, yeah, uh uh-huh. It was hard. It was a hard moment for me as a mom. I know you moms are like, seriously, that is not hard. It was hard. Okay, I'm done. I got that off my chest. Um, He talks real good now, real pretty now. Talks all real good. Uh, What about this? You waiting on a career change? You waiting on a marriage proposal? Are you waiting on... um, A diet to kick in? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, I didn't look at anybody. What about this? Are you waiting for some medical tests to come back? Are you waiting for a relationship to start or one to end? Are you waiting for the grief to subside? Are you waiting for a prodigal to return? Waiting's hard, right? Right? What happens in the waiting? We know this, we're humans, right? We can love Jesus with all that we are and it's still hard. And he knew that, he knew that. But what happens in the waiting often is anxiety builds. We just let it just fester, don't we? Just festers. Sometimes doubts creep in and your patience gets tested like when you got a stuttering toddler. And sometimes all you wanna do is control it or fix it or manipulate it. And sometimes that desire gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And I don't know if, you, if you're like me, but what I do in the waiting when I don't wanna wait anymore is I start getting real tired of the silence that I feel like God is giving me. And I start trying to manipulate and create new scenarios over here. And then I just kind of ask him to bless it. you know, I'm like, hey God, my, you know my heart. My motives are pure. Make this happen. And oftentimes there's more waiting that comes, right? I read this um, this week that waiting and hoping are wound together like strands of a rope. Have you ever thought of that? Waiting and hoping are like strands together, um, um, bound together like a rope because, and this made sense once I started thinking about, because when we're waiting on something, we are waiting on something that we think, we hope we want to happen, Right? It's like when we're waiting, we get consumed by what we think should be the finish line of the waiting. Yeah? And I would say this um, maybe that that maybe that's true, but maybe what we need to be doing instead of hoping for an outcome is asking ourselves where are we putting our hope in? Is our hope in the circumstance changing? Because if that's where we put our hope, we are going to be disappointed every time. Amen? Because even with Ruth, right? Like, I mean, we saw Ruth, like there's no possible way when she set off from Moab with her cranky mother-in-law that, that possibly she ever saw this thing unfolding this way. There's no possible way. And I don't think Naomi did either. And I probably think that Moab, um, Boaz didn't either. And so what I wonder is, do we do that too? Do we set off on these journeys of waiting and we, re, we just forget to say, all right, my hope is in you. And, and I believe that you know what's best, even though this is awful. Amen. It's funny. I was, um, <laughs> while I was getting ready to do this, I had a really hard day yesterday and, and I, it was not the day that I had, had thought it would be. And usually my Tuesdays are, are I kind of keep everything real quiet because I try to just really, you know, focus on this stuff. And Tuesday didn't come together like that for me. And so, um, I was real nervous. I was like, maybe we just play those videos the whole time. <laughs> and, but it was so crazy because as I was, as I had finally was getting ready for last night, cause I teach, um, you know, Tuesday night too, I was getting ready and I was blow drying my hair and I was sitting there blow drying. I, you know, that's where I do a lot of good prayer time. You know, when you're doing stuff like that, you're like, okay, God, I, this is your problem. I mean, you're gonna have to work this one out because I don't feel good about this. And I was waiting for my hair to dry. See what I did right there. Come on, guys. Y'all need more coffee before you walk in here. I need better audience participation. I was waiting for my hair to dry. This is waiting. It's the hardest part, says Tom Petty. Anyway, my hair doesn't take long to dry. I don't have a lot of it. Anyway, I literally was blow drying my hair, waiting for it to dry, and I was praying. Hey, um... I don't know what you want me to say. And this came to my mind. And I'm not gonna say it was God's big God voice because I'd have only not heard that very often, but I feel certain that this was what I was supposed to read because when I read it after I blow dried my hair, I was like, wow, that's a crazy coincidence. Here's what, here's what he told me. Psalm 13, Psalm 13, jot it down. It's gonna be another one you're not gonna wanna put on a pillow, but I'm just gonna tell you, Psalm 13, and I got there and then I realized this is why. Here's how it goes. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide my face from hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long Shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken and put a circle around this one. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Verse five, That term, steadfast love, do you know what it is? Do you know how it translates in the Hebrew? Guess, hesed. That is what, I was just like, okay, God, I see you. I see my hair needs to be, I see you. What in the world? He wants us to know this. You know what I think about this Psalm? This Psalm is hard to read. You know why? You know it's hard? Because you feel the agony, don't you? You feel the pain in the waiting. Whatever he is waiting on was awful. But you know what you don't see in this verse? You do not see God fix the circumstances. We do not see a happy ending where God, and it says and God with his God hands did this God thing and everything was great and then they all sang and it didn't, you don't see that. We don't see anything change, nothing. How about that for encouragement? I don't know how much longer he waited after he wrote this, but I do know this, that verse five says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. You see, he's not saying if you change things, if you make my wait end. Instead, he's saying, no, I trust in you. I hope in you. I don't know what's coming. I don't know why I'm waiting. I don't know why this hurts. And so... I wonder, is that something that we need to be doing too? Do we need to focus less on what's happening when we're waiting and more on what we have hope in? There's three things I wanna to say to you and I'm out of time, so I'm gonna say them fast, okay? Three things, how do we trust God in the waiting? I feel like we need to hear this. First, talk to him. Will you be honest with him? I, I don't consider myself like this eloquent prayer. You've probably figured that out from being in this class. But you know what I think is God loves prayers like this, like two words, help me. Right? He loves that. How about this one? Um, Hey God, I don't know what's going on and I really hate it and I really hate waiting. But I have trusted in your steadfast love and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation and I will sing to the Lord. How about that one? That's a good one, right? Talk to him. Second thing is shift your focus. Look for him working in the waiting. You know, we talked about how how waiting and hoping are like intertwined. Well, how about this? Instead of just only focusing on what we want to come out of it, what we want the outcome to be, we focus on what he's already doing in the waiting long time ago, I heard this example of like a circus. If you're an old timer like me, you've been to like a real life circus, you know, like in a tent, which was very creepy and weird. Talk about weird, it was weird, you know. But, there's, but you go in, you sit in the stands, right? You know what I'm gonna say? There's three rings and there's one and there's this spotlight on it. And that's what you're supposed to be watching. You know, that's where the horses are dancing or doing. But if you, have you ever looked in the other two rings? There's always stuff going on. Like there's weird clowns, you know, hanging out over there doing their thing. There's, they're getting the lions ready over here. But the point is, even when you're supposed to be focusing on what the light is, there's always stuff happening because they're getting ready, right, for what's coming. And that's always stuck with me. Like I don't look for what God's doing in, in the behind the scenes. I'm just mad because it didn't look the way I want it to look. And so I would say to you, shift your focus and start saying, hey, God, I need to see you in the waiting because I feel like I'm in this waiting room for a while. So show me what you're doing here. And the third thing I would say is um, lean on what you know. Lean on what you know. Even when things don't make sense, like weird chicken loaves and strange salmon recipes, right? Things don't make sense. And maybe whatever you're waiting on is like so incredibly unfair, So unjust. It's hard to understand it, right? It's hard to understand it. But I would say this, we got to lean on, not on the results, but lean on the God who is with us in the midst of it, you know? He might just be setting the stage for something amazing. You know, the very last part of that um, chapter three, when she says to wait, you know, some translations that actually translate to sit still. She's telling her to sit still. Trust God, Naomi is telling her that. And so I hope that what you can do is that you could spend time talking to him in the waiting, that you can shift your focus to look at what he's doing in the midst of it, but then you could also lean on what you know of God. And I'll tell you this, use the um, the, the great theologian, Google. If you wanna know what you can know, Google character traits of God, return. And you're gonna come back with scripture after scripture. Shoot, go to Psalms and just start reading. Because he's the God who never leaves. He's the God who loves you. He's the God who lifts you. He's the God who lifts your head. He's the God who hems you in. He's the God who gives you broad places to put your feet. That's who he is. And that's what you can know. And so when things don't feel right, you go back to what you know, not what you feel, right? All right, I'm going to pray. And then you're going to run like the wind to your class. Father, um, thank you for using crazy, weird, slightly scandalous stories in the Bible to point us to you. Um, we love this love story and because we're in this love story too. And so, Father, I pray that um, you show us, continue to show us who you are, show us what we can know about you, even when our circumstances are unstable and uncertain and unfavorable. Father, thank you so much that, um, that you give us these little hints about who you are. I pray today that we soak that into our bones. I pray today that we spend more time talking to you. I pray that we see you for who you are, not who you are through the lens of our circumstances, but rather we see our circumstances through the lens of who you are. God, thanks that you love us this much. And it's in your precious son's name that we pray, amen.